This week, we're going deep with Northwestern professor Neil Verma for a classic episode of Lights Out, Arch Obler's classic horror show. We're going to play the feature, and then Professor Verma will help me analyze it in historical context. It's a deliciously spooky tale, and just the thing to carry us into the cold nights of December. It's a case of murder in the script department. And this is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Arch Obler was a famously prolific author of audio fiction. As you'll hear later in my conversation with Neil Verma, Obler wrote over 60 plays a year. Now, we're going to learn more about the man in a segment we call Going Deep. I did this before with Gabrielle Urbina, where we covered Willis Cooper's The Thing on the Forble Board from Quiet, Please. We're looking at a piece of classic radio fiction and trying to understand it in context. Is it a piece of modern audio fiction? No. It's old. It's in the public domain. Does this conflict with the mission of our program? No. Shush, go sit in the corner. Get settled, get cozy, and set your thermostat to bone-chilling. Enjoy. Arch Obler's Lights Out Everybody. It is later than This is Arch Obler bringing you another in our series of stories of the unusual. And once again, we caution you. These lights-out stories are definitely not for the timid soul. So we tell you calmly and very sincerely, if you frighten easily, turn off your radio now. Oh, what time is it? Ten minutes more. Gee, it's been a long day, hasn't it? I'll say so. If I never see another script or typewriter, it'll be too soon. <laughs> you were the one who wanted to get into radio. Radio. Sitting at a typewriter eight hours a day, making stencils. You were the one who said it would be a shortcut. Some director would walk into the script department, see you behind that typewriter, and say, Where have you been all my life? Mary, stop it, will you? You think you're so cute. I don't see anyone wearing it. Ready? Mary. After all, this is a place of business. Yes, ma'am. I don't like to be the disciplinarian, but this is the third time that I found you quarreling with each other rather than working. Well, we weren't quarreling. Perhaps not, but it sounded like it. You're setting a very unfortunate example for the other girls. I'm going to ask both of you a simple question. Do you or do you not want to continue working here? Well, we don't. Yes, of course we do. Very well. No more of this nonsense, then. There's a script that must be mimeographed first thing tomorrow morning, so the censors will have to be out tonight. It shouldn't take you long. What's the matter with you girls? Have you any objections to working late tonight? Oh, no. Oh, I'd love it. Very well. All right. The rest of you girls, time to go home. Yes, I'd love to stay over time if I could type over her dead body. Hush, hush. She'll hear you. Here's the script, girls. Twenty pages. Divide it up between yourselves. Yes, ma'am. When you're through, leave the stencils on my desk and lock the door behind you. Yes, ma'am. Well, good night. Don't forget to turn out the lights as you go. Yes, ma'am. All right, girls. Let's get out of here quickly so that Bernice and Mary can finish their work. Of all the knock-kneed, blabbeared, long-necked potheels. Oh, stop it, will you? Let's oh. type the darn thing off and get out of here. <sighs> well, what do you know? What's the matter? Look at the script we're supposed to type. Lights out. <laughs> One of those things. Yeah. So what? I... I don't like to type them. They scare me. Are you kidding? Typing's typing, no matter what you're typing. Well, not if it's one of those lights out, please. Blood and people dying and murderers and worms. Oosh. Forget it. Just words on paper. It scares me. Mm, type with your eyes closed. Oh. Here, listen to this. Note to the sound department. At this point in the play, I want the sound of a body being turned inside out. I suggest the use of a wet rubber glove to plant the picture of a human being being deliberately turned. Oh, stop it, will you? <laughs> For Pete's sake. It's only a sound effect. I was just reading. Well, will you type your script and let me type this? Don't go reading any of it out loud. All right, all right. I wonder what kind of a screwball he is. Who? The fellow who writes his plays, you know. Arch Oberlin? Yeah. Oh, I like him. What are you talking about? You never even met him. Well, I like him anyway. But you just finished saying you don't like this. I like his other plays. You know, the ones he does for the government? With sense to them. Well, personally, I think he's a wolf. 
Well, what are you talking about? You know, one of these werewolves. I bet he eats his young. Well, don't talk like that. He's got a 10-month-old baby. I saw a picture of it. And it's real cute. Well, I still think... Well, for it... heaven's sake, just because the man writes fantastic doesn't mean he's fantastic. Well, you look who's talking. Well, you're even afraid to type him. What are you afraid of, that the ghost will pop out of the pages and turn you inside oh, out? Oh, stop it, will you, if you don't stop all it? Right, all right, let's type. Well, how do you like that? What's the matter now? My typewriter's jammed. Can't move a key. B. What's the matter with you? Mine is, too. <laughs> My typewriter is, too. Like the fellow said, say la guerre. Everything's falling apart. Suppose we'll have to use one of the other machines. Just when I was getting comfortable. I'll use Anita. Yeah, I'm going to use Evelyn's. She won't care what I do with it. She's going to be a wave anyway. Mary, this one's jammed, too. Yeah, so is Evelyn's. Yeah, try Elle's machine. She's always boasting about how fast it is. Why, it's jammed, too. Well, so is this one. Well, what do you know? <laughs> what is it, the typewriter, Gremlin? Mary, what's the matter? Your face. Let's get out of here. What's the matter? Let's get out of here. We've got overtime. I tell you, let's go home. Well, just because a typewriter jams up is no reason to have a fit. Well, I'm getting out of here, and you better come with me. Oh, you're crazy running out. What's come over you? What? Bernice, what's the matter with you now? What are you standing at the door with your back to me for? Stay or go? Bernice, come here quick. Oh, for Pete's sake. What's the matter with you? Why are you standing there for with your hand on the knob? It's locked. What? Locked. Locked. Oh, you are crazy. Huh. Let me add it. Let me try. Why is it locked? Because some screwball janitor thought everybody had left and locked the door, that's all. Say, somebody out there. Let us out of here. We're locked in. Hey! It, it won't do any good. That's what you say. I'll wake the dead. Hey! Are you deep or deaf or whatever it is? Somebody get a key and let us out. Hey, we're not slave labor. Let us out. What's the matter with me? Where are you going? All I've got to do is pick up the telephone and call communications. They'll get us out of here. Oh, yes. Call them right away. Tell them we're locked. All right. All right. I'm calling them. Hello. Hello. Answer me. What's the matter? Oh, I'm dead. Oh. Stop that. The operator thought we'd all gone home, so she disconnected the wire. That's all. Oh, oh for Pete's sake, of all the nincompoops, what is there to cry about? Oh, I'm afraid. So you're afraid, so I'm queen of the May and there are roses in the air. What is this all about? What's all the hysteria? You don't understand. Don't say I don't. You stop crying. No, something terrible is going to happen. What are you talking about? We're in the script department of a broadcasting company, remember? Well, something jammed the typewriters. Something locked the door. Something... What do you mean, something? Something, I tell you. I tell you, you're crazy. I think I've known you all these weeks and never knew you had bats in your belfry. There's absolutely nothing that's happened. Why did you stop talking? Answer me. Telephone cord. <gasps> the end, it's torn off. Yes. But I... I talked on this telephone only an hour ago, remember? Yes. How could have gotten torn loose? I told you. Oh, shut up. All right, maybe there is something screwy. I don't know. But I do know there's nothing to get hysterical about. The place only had windows I could call out. On modernistic air conditioning... Will you stop moaning? Well, you're scared, too. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Series of coincidences, that's all. What could it be? Answer me what? Who ever heard of anything happening in a place like this? Well, what are you looking at me like that for? This is no haunted house. You and me and a lot of other girls work here, remember? Both are locked in and have to stay here all night. So what? The door's locked from the outside. The watchman downstairs, remember? So who could get in here to hurt us? What if... The locked door won't do any good. What? You heard me. Oh, you're a crazy kid. Look, desks and chairs, fluorescent light, modern design, remember? We're not in a haunted house. Get that through your head. We're not in a haunted house. Oh. Well, what's the matter now? Get all through explaining. What's the matter? Something happened. Happened? Something in the air. What are you... Oh, for heaven. Over there at the end of the room. The light must have burned out. Oh. I was right. Just to show you how crazy you've been. A couple of natural things happen and you start acting out a ghost story. You should join the actors' union. Bernice. Well, one of the lights burned out. So what? There's one thing the script department's got. Plenty of light. Mary, why are you... Another light. I saw it go out. Are you dreaming? I tell you, I saw it go out. You're crazy. It did I saw it. Now, look here. There are two, four, six, eight, eight lights in this place. See? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now, don't give me any more of that light's out. Another... Another. You're absolutely crazy. I'm scared just staying here with you. Count them. Why should I? Count them. 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Not eight. Seven. Gee. I told you. Oh, no. What? Another one out. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, Stop it. Stop it. Another one there. Go. Over next to Miss Winton's desk. Another one. What? Only four left. Only four. What'll we do? Only four. Who's putting them out? I don't know. I don't... Another... Oh. Only three more. If they go out, I'll die. They won't go out. They can't go out. The switch. That's it. I'll hold the switch. I won't turn out the lights if I hold the switch. It's all right, Mary. See? I got hold of the switch. Nothing Another can... one. Another one. But I was holding onto the switch. Too light. Too light in the dark. Bernice. Oh, Bernice, hold me. I'm scared. Oh, gee, I'm scared. All right. It's all right. There's still too light. Too light. They'll stay on. They will. I know they will. They're both out. We're in the dark. Bernice. Where are you? Let me out of here. I'm afraid of the dark. Let me out of here. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Isn't it bad enough without you driving me crazy? What's the good of your crying? There's a reason. There must be for this. Everything's got a reason. I know it. I know it. I can't stand it. I can't. I can't. Those blackout candles. Stop crying and let me think. Miss Whitten had some blackout candles in her desk. I know she did. Oh, don't leave me alone. Don't leave me in the dark, Bernice. Will you stop what I found? Candles. Matches. There. Three candles like this one. And this one. See? Plenty of light now. Who's there? Nobody. Nobody. There's a reason for everything, I tell you. I know what it is. The electricians, that's it. The electricians didn't know we were up here, and they were testing the lights. They'll go on any minute. Wait and see. You think so? Of course. Look, what did I tell you? <laughs> there they go on again. Look at the ceiling. Oh, oh no. Green. The light now is green. Green. All the light. Green. You lied to me. You said it was the electricians. Look at the light. It's green. It makes your face look green. You look dead. You hear me? Dead. You'll be dead and I'll be dead. We'll be dead. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. You're not going to drive me crazy. Just because there's something wrong with the electricity. You look around. Everything's all right. Nothing's wrong here. Nothing. Is that typing? I heard typing. Those eyes. Typing. Just must have imagined. <laughs> Typewriter. Look at the typewriter. Typing. And there's no one. Who's typing? Who's typing? I, I, I'm so tired. Me too. I wonder if it's day. I don't know. I don't think so. Sooner or later, someone will come along. Don't say that. Nothing happened this last hour, has it? Nothing. It will. When I get out of here, I never want to talk to you as long as I live. As long as you live. Stop talking like that, or do I help? Don't hurt me. I'm not hurting you. No one's going to hurt you. Or me. Trick. It's some kind of a trick. The typewriters. Electric ones, I say. Power. Something. It's got to be a trick. You don't believe it, do you? Believe what? Something in this room with it. Where? I don't know. But it's here. What are you trying to do? Make me scared as you are scared? There's something in this room. Where? Ain't anywhere. Just you and me, that's all. You're not going to scare me. I'm not going to let myself get scared anymore. I want to get out of here, and I'm going to get out of here. My head's still... Yes. I heard it, too. What? Something...
open your eyes. Please. You're not dead. You can't see. I'm all right. Oh. I thought... I'm all right. But what happened? You fainted. Did I? Yes. The desk. <laughs>
are gone. Dark again. Mary. Mary, wake up. Mary's the light. Please wake up. I'm not asleep. Oh. I thought. Sun is very nice. Isn't it? The sun. You still think... Mary, don't you know? Can't you see we're sitting in the dark? Dark. Stay close to me. If they'd only come. I know. You'll be here soon. Who? In the dark. You'll be here. Who are you talking about? Who? Any minute now. Do you hear him? Here? I think he's coming now. Yes. He is. No. Please, no. You're right. It is dark. Very dark. His kind of dark. Stop talking like that. You can't stop him. No one can stop him. What's the use of being afraid? If someone had only come. I've been telling you. Someone is coming. Right now. And he's sitting on the desk looking at it. I'm glad he's here. He'll make my head stop hurting. He'll take me home. The floor. It's lifting. Yes. I feel it. The room. It's turning. Stop it. Stop turning the room. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. Total of 15 Axis planes shot down in the Mediterranean theater of war. So much for the war news. Now the news of local interest to you early morning listeners. If you've been wondering why those dishes in the kitchen started to dance last night, the answer is an earth trembler, earthquake to you of five seconds duration. The material damage was very slight. But two deaths are indirectly attributed to the earthquake. Bernice Saxton and Mirabelle Pressler, employed by the broadcasting company, were found dead this morning in the script department where they've been doing overtime work. Cause of the deaths is believed to have been heart failure induced by fright. The girls have been accidentally locked in the office, and when there was a failure of electric power followed by earthquake, it is believed the young women were frightened to death. This concludes our morning broadcast. That was the feature. And now, joining me for a chat is Northwestern University Professor of Sound Studies, Neil Verma. Hello, Neil. Hello. Welcome back to RDR. Oh, it's great to be here. So you were saying that you had just been in D.C. with the Radio Preservation Task Force. Who all is involved with that effort? Let's see. So this year we had about 300 participants. Some of them are kind of... Uh, director level folks at places like uh, the National Archives, Smithsonian, uh, Library of Congress. And a lot of them are communications historians and professors like me, a lot of radio historians, and a few archivists and um, people who are part of really large library holding organizations of different kinds. So a whole lot of like deep blue archive nerds. What do you mean by deep blue? Meaning that they are, you know, the the top of the food chains when it comes to radio uh radio history, and people have kind of dedicated their lives to this kind of work. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, Neil, the reason that you are, the other reason that you are here today is um, related to the other travels that you did recently, which was to Germany over the summer. Um, and you messaged me back in August uh, to talk about a class that you were going to be teaching in Germany. What, what was that about? Uh, so our university, I teach at Northwestern, we have a, a partnership with the University of Cologne, 
in Germany. And every year, a few of us go over uh, to Cologne, specifically to a, a theater archive there that's housed in this kind of small castle in the Rhineland. And the idea is, is that we have this international seminar of of PhD students, a few from Cologne, a few from uh, the US, and a few from all over the world. And we kind of get together and have these sort of high-level uh, seminars. And so our, our theme this year was belief and how we come to believe in things. Uh, so this is a, a perfect theme for a radio historian because much of what the problem in classical radio aesthetics and I suppose even audio drama today is how you get someone to believe or understand or think that something is happening that they can't see. So I gave a little talk about the War of the Worlds. I'm the kind of person who people ask to give a talk about the War of the Worlds, and I'm happy to do it. But I also thought that it would be fun to study this one particular radio play by a, a radio dramatist named Arch Obler called Murder in the Script Department. Yes. So this is a segment we like to call Going Deep. Uh, I think the first time we did this was last August. I did it with Gabriel Urbina, who's the showrunner for Wolf 359, and we played his favorite piece of... 40s audio drama, which is uh, Willis Cooper's The Thing on the Forbal Board right. from Quiet, Please. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be very curious to know what the deal is with Arch Obler of, of Lights Out. And what, what else did he make, first of all? Well, so let me tell you a little bit about him. So first of all, his work is very closely related to that of Cooper. Cooper inspired Arch Obler, and Arch Obler actually succeeded him in the Lights Out program. Oh, interesting. Uh, but let me back up a little bit. So Obler was born in 1909 in Chicago, and uh, he was immediately fascinated by radio drama and radio plays. He sold his first to NBC in 1934, so uh, he was quite young. And uh, he was inspired by the, the godfather of radio horror in the Midwest anyway, a guy named Willis Cooper, who premiered the Lights Out program on WENR Chicago. I think it was on Wednesday nights at midnight. And Lights Out was kind of this amazing experiment in what horror and radio could do for one another as two different modes of uh, expression. And Obler sold a few scripts to them, and that kind of was the beginning of his career. He became an incredibly prolific radio writer, writing mostly for NBC or NBC stations. He authored, you know, according to him anyway, about 65 plays a year, which is a lot of radio writing. Oh my God. Yeah. Only a fraction of these were horror. He became famous, actually, for a non-horror radio play called The Garden of Eden that aired in 1937. It was this very short skit that starred Don Amici and Mae West. But as you can probably tell from the title, it had a slightly saucy content. And Mae West, being Mae West, decided to play that up quite a lot. Uh, so if you search on the internet, you can find this radio play pretty easily. And it's it's quite it's quite something to listen to because there's a bunch of suggestive sexual lines. And Mae West kind of just lets the suggestion hang there and the audience goes wild. Interesting. And this is 1937? This is 1937. And, and legend has it that Mae West was banned from radio for a decade as a result of this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was there, was there something equivalent to like a Hayes production code for the radio in the 30s? Well, at, at this point, it's mainly done in-house. There was the strongest censorship was actually done by NBC's own censors. And so if you read stuff by Orson Welles or anyone like that, there was an awful lot more going on there. We are just a few years into the founding of the Federal Communications Commission. So they had their own kind of standards and their observational uh, protocols. And uh, I, I don't know to what extent that was enshrined in legislation. But if you read most of these work, it's kind of done mostly self-patrolling in the same way that uh, that the, the film industry wanted to do it. Anyway, so Mae West was out, but no problems for Arch Obler. He kind of became known as probably the second most famous radio writer besides Norman Corwin. Uh, but a lot of the stories about him are much like just flashier. Like you read uh, accounts of him like standing on top of tables to cue actors. Um, he used a dictaphone to write his plays so that they sound like radio. He was known to disappear uh, from a party in the middle of a party because he got an idea for a radio play and then come back 15 minutes later with a finished script. Huh. Yeah, uh, he was thought of as a little bit of a show off. And he worked uh, with lots of really famous people. Joan Crawford asked him to write specific plays for her. It was a big career move to be in, a, in an Archobler play. He had a huge influence on post-war television. He, After radio, he started doing lots of interesting experiments in 3D film. He was one of the first people to be working in that medium in the 50s. Fascinating. Yeah, he was a big influence on Stephen King. Stephen King is a huge fan of Archobler. So uh, despite this kind of long and varied career, he will always be remembered for 
this one show lights out starts out with this great wonderful gonging phrase it is later than you think <laughs> uh and this great disclaimer about how terrifying the show was about to be so if you had if, if you were too timid of soul you should really turn off the radio now which was the best advertising in the world of course sure and it also actually legitimately functions as a content warning that's true i you know, I'm a bit skeptical about how much he really cared about that, to be honest with you. I don't uh, think he did at all, but sure. <laughs> I mean, the thing about Obler is that, and and I think this is something people don't really get about him exactly, is that a lot of his plays are quite hokey and a little bit childish. Uh-huh. And I think that they're supposed to be. I mean, he he was one of the pioneers of the late night horror radio pun you know like he really thought that what he was doing was a form of comedy in some ways what do you mean the late night horror radio pun what do you mean by uh, oh that? i'm thinking of like uh you know if you ever watch like the crypt keeper type shows or um mm -hmm. inner sanctum mysteries the host raymond did that a lot they would often tell these kind of very terrible dad jokes in between the acts of a show and it was a way of like reminding you that this is all in fun and that that was really true of Arch Obler. He was he was a big one to like make little jokes about how macabre and uh, bloodthirsty he was when in fact he was just trying to have a good time. I'm still trying to like categorize this because I think my head is kind of in 70s television mode because I'm imagining frankly I'm imagining Rich Wentworth from Hadron Gospel Hour. Okay. Just like doing his horror host bit and being like as we return to our story, is our protagonist too ghoul for school? Like that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. It's it's not that far from that. I mean, they got all this stuff from radio. That's where it sort of came from. The other show that does this a lot is uh, Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Um, Inner Sanctum Mysteries is an interesting case because their horror host was this guy named Raymond. And he always had... Uh, a second banana kind of character who was usually a woman who was the product spokesperson. So in this case, it was a, this woman named Mary who worked for Lipton Soup. And so he would say something really uh, ghoulish. And then he'd say, now let's hear from Mary who's going to sell you some Lipton Soup. Right? <laughs> so they they had this real sense of humor about it. and 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 that spills over into the scripts themselves. So I think the one thing I want people to understand about Arch Hobler as a as a dramatist is that if you listen to his stuff, I think the first couple of listens, you're very attuned to this kind of hokey, bad dialogue, a little bit overdone, where you think the humor is on purpose or not on purpose. The playfulness of it seems antique, but gradually, and the more you listen to it, the more deeper it becomes. Uh, he was one of the first people to really use stream of consciousness and interior monologue in, in radio. Uh, it had a huge influence on film noir and a lot of other genres around this time. And the other thing about his plays that I really think is so important, having studied them for a really long time and thought about them for a really long time, is that he just creates these incredibly vivid pictures. You know, uh, when the play is over and, you know, you didn't really care about the characters and then six months go by or maybe 10 years go by, you can still remember these incredibly vivid scenes that he's created. And I really think that that's something that contemporary audio drama is very interested in doing. And that's one of the reasons why I think he's an interesting model to, to lean on. You know, he has this great radio play about uh, an Eastern dictator who goes into a submarine bathysphere with a would-be assassin, and they're looking out the portal at all these strange uh, underwater creatures. Um, a green powder that falls from the sky and turns people into pigs. Uh, a special room in a, <laughs> a serial murderer's house in which oxygen is vacuumed out. A chicken heart that grows to colossal size. Uh, a Nazi executioner who's confronted with the same victim over and over again. He hangs the victim and then they come back and they come back. A body being turned inside out. He just makes these incredible pictures. Oh, so that, that reference that Bernice makes in the script to a body being turned inside out was a literal reference to an actual Arch Obler play? Yeah, it's a real radio play. It's called The Dark. And uh, The Dark is about a doctor being called to this house at the edge of town where he and his helper, uh, they find this woman who is laughing her, her, her mind out, this insane woman who's laughing her mind out. And they look in the, the basement and they see this dark creature along the ground. And the dark creature along the ground just keeps creeping up to them and eventually turns their bodies inside out, the flesh on the outside and the, and the, the outside on the inside. Uh, and so I think, as they say in the radio play, the, the way he made that effect was with a wet rubber glove being turned inside out. Ugh. 
Yeah, it's really. And, and, I mean, that's that's campy and great and gross. Yeah, yeah. when I give talks about Obler, uh, inevitably people, someone will remember hearing that while they were at camp. Huh. You know, like when they were like late one night, the camp counselor will gather everyone in the tent or whatever, and they'd play this piece, uh, and uh, it becomes a kind of vivid part of people's adolescent imagination. So you were mentioning that Obler is one of the first people to really start leaning on stream of consciousness. What's What's going on in audio fiction during this period? What I mean, what year did uh, Murder in the Script Department come out? It's 1943, 1943, right? yeah. Well, what's going on in, in audio drama, and I think we've talked about this a little before, is that kind of the, the larger landscape, these big social dramas that were kind of very dominant in the late 1930s, they begin to diminish. And instead, you get plays that are much more about psychological states. And Murder in the Script Department is a perfect example of it, uh, where uh, what we're really examining is how people are reacting to stimuli uh, and how it's affecting their consciousness and their minds. Um, this is a play in which minds become overwhelmed, and, and the fascination of it is trying to see what happens to those minds as they become overwhelmed, how they interact with one another. Uh, so Obler is one of those people who really concentrates on interiority, on in, the insides of your, of your psyche. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because he doesn't have, in 1943, a big kind of grand narrative about human personality or development. You know, if this happened 20 years later, it would all be Hitchcock and Freud and childhood trauma and stuff like that. But that's not a big narrative for him. So what they tended to think about was more how... Uh, very well-crafted stimuli could really invade and take over and surmount uh, psych psychic defenses. And that's something that his plays are really, really good at examining. Even even the ones that aren't necessarily about, about horror, he wrote an awful lot of plays about the war. He was a pacifist. Uh, but as soon as the war broke out, he became a very uh, prolific anti-fascist uh, dramatist, which was true of, of all the radio dramatists at this time, is that they, they just churned out anti-Nazi plays like crazy. And that had a certain influence as well. Is that what Mary's referring to when she says, I like his plays that he made for the government? Yes, that's exactly what she's referring to. Okay. What what do you make of that meta referential section in the beginning of the play? Well, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of there's a lot of inside jokes in this play. Horn tooting? Yeah, there's part of it is horn tooting, but there's also, you know, the scene where the lights start going out. <laughs> right. And they start saying, Oh, the lights are going out. I mean, it's supposed to be kind of poking fun at it. Archobler was kind of a, a, a society page person. So talking about him having a kid, uh, things like that, they were part of publicizing his personality. Wells did this too. Lots of lots of radio dramatists kind of uh, became public personalities through the, the dramas they told. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of it is kind of self-referential. Um, there's also an aspect of this that I wanted to bring up, which is, it's a bit kind of theory-ish. I don't know if you want to go in that direction or not. Nah, hit me. That's why we're here. Okay, so do you remember the first thing you hear in the play? The very first thing? The very first thing, after the introduction. After the introduction. Um, is it not the typists? Is it not the sound of them typing? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's the sound of typing. So in traditional radio theory, and this is you can find this in books from like the 1930s. One of the earliest is called uh, The Stuff of Radio by Lance Sievaking. And there was this idea about the relationship between sound effects and words. And it's called, for Siva King, it was called the, the confirmatory effect. Uh, other people call it text pointing. And the idea is that you have a sound effect and then the sound effect is confirmed by the, the surrounding dialogue. So you hear something, it could be typing, but you're not sure, right? And then at a certain point, there's a little bit of patter between Mary and Bernice and you realize, okay, they're typists. This is a big room full of typists at a radio station. I've got it now. So what what's happening here is that you have this this kind of uh, moment where you're presented with sense data, you're presented with a sound, you're uncertain about it. There's this gap, and then that gap is closed or uh, cleaned up or or just remedied by a certain interpretation of a few words. It sounds really simplistic and trivial, but so much of classical radio is about exactly this relationship: the the presentation of words that are confirmed by sounds, or the presentation of sounds that are confirmed by words. And that means that on this very deep subconscious level, all the time. We're in this state where we're constantly being put into an anxiety about, about understanding and then reassured, put in the anxiety and then reassured. Isn't that the basic unit of meaning for audio drama? 
is to repeatedly resolve those tensions? Yes, that's how, well, to produce them and then resolve them. At least that's how these people understood their craft. Now, there's other things going on in the audio too that are not as apparent to them. Things like rhythm or things like reverb that are also important dramatic qualities. They're just not exactly uh, on the front burner for these, these dramatists. Okay, so that's what the confirmatory effect is all about. Now, if you imagine that and the fact that this, this radio play starts out that way, and then you remember all the other sound effects that you hear in this, this play, and you understand what these women are trying to do throughout it, they're basically in the same situation that, that we are as listeners. They hear something or they see something and they can't figure out what it is. They can't find some kind of secondary level of information that's going to confirm and assuage the doubt. So mm -hmm. if you imagine that gap, that, that, that kind of miniature gap that's always there in radio communication, this radio play just opens it up to this big yawning fissure. Uh, and so that's one of the things that's so interesting about it, that's what's self-reflexive about it, is that he's kind of taking a, a basic element of the language of radio drama, and he's putting characters in a situation where he's kind of dilating the whole process. And what ends up happening is it drives them to catatonia and madness. <laughs> you know, so it's a, I don't want to say it's a joke, but it's certainly an experiment in radio technique. The narrative itself does, it stages that. And Obler was enough of like an experimentalist and kind of a, a self-promoter that it feels to you like he would have done this very thing and then bragged about it? Um. Yeah, or he might have just done it for his own amusement. A lot of really great radio directors do things just for their own amusement. Um, and sometimes there are like just these, these things that you're just not sure whether or not they're deliberate or not, and yet there they are, you know? In some ways, it, it kind of doesn't matter if it's really Archobler's idea or his plan. It, it's just a, it's, it's a kind of um, uh, necessary corollary of the, the story he wants to tell. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting in part because like a lot of how classical radio dramatists really thought about sound effects, music, and voice, it's like a balancing act between these three things. Uh, contemporary radio drama often like deals with works that kind of coincide. They kind of pile things on top of another. Um, but it, it, there's, there's a, lo a lot of work in, in the classical period where there's just these kind of gaps and these fissures that, that they imagine as, as really kind of crucial to how you can manage things like suspense and um, allegiance, the way characters evolve, those kinds of things. Interesting. There, was a, there are a couple of themes that I'm interested in exploring about the play, and one of them is the continually hitting the note of modernity as being something that will protect Mary and Bernice from the horror. Right. You know, that... Yeah. Like we have electric lights, we have uh, air conditioning to keep out, you know, all of the bad stuff. And and one by one, all of these technological um, advantages are overtaken by the terror. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, these technological advantages are the medium through which the terror works, right? They're often talking about, oh, they're all electric typewriters, aren't they? And, and they talk about being in the high rise and janitorial services and elevators and all these sorts of things. And in some ways, all of these things are kind of turning against them. All of the ordinary implements of their kind of modern existence turn against them. And and they, they also kind of turn against each other in a certain way as well. So yeah, I think that there's a way in which uh, a lot of these uncanny audio dramas that Art Obler does will, will show us a modern technology. Other ones are things like newsreels or uh, radio studios or microphones that become haunted or become uh, the bearer of uh, some sort of you know, horrific entity um, that is there to often teach us a lesson. That's another thing about his plays. They're often very moralistic. Yeah, that was really cool. We were talking before uh, we started recording about, what was it called? The, um, the Ghost on the Newsreel magazine? Yeah, yeah. Or the Newsreel negative? Which, which takes place in downstate Illinois and these two newsreel producers from Chicago drive out to Algonquin to meet with this, you know, creepy old man at this creepy old farmhouse. And it turns out he, he claims he's a ghost. They, they bring back the tape. They bring back the film reel to Chicago and their boss yells at them because there's nobody depicted on the tape. And then it turns out that the ghost has infected and haunted the medium of the tape itself. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
It's a very kind of typical thing that would happen in this period. Uh, you know, another thing to think about in, in the mid-1940s is that this is sort of the birth of what we would think of as like an information society. The idea of like real-time uh, relationships, real-time uh, command structures and communications apparatuses that span the world. This is really a, a, a development that, that the war brought about. And uh, a lot of radio dramas kind of are dealing with that, or, or they're trying to understand that they're using that as a, a scenario or a pretext. So often you'll have stories about journalists or radio repairmen or uh, signal corps officers that are in some far-flung part of the world, and they're responsible for maintaining some really important message or crucial signal. And these are always liable to being taken over by not only kind of geopolitical enemies, but also these supernatural forces that are kind of bubbling up underneath all of this new media architecture. I noticed when I was listening to Willis Cooper's stuff that he seemed to take a very particular pride in creating these very accurate thumbnail sketches of professions. And on, you know, my, my brief dive into Obler, it seems like he's kind of doing the same thing, that he really wants to depict these workplaces very accurately. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, he is not as scrupulous about it. I don't think he does. He manages realism or realism is as important to him as it is for Cooper. Uh, certainly not. The, the Cooper broadcasts of the late 1940s, the ones that are on Quiet, Please, anyone who's listened to them will know that they often involve someone with a really obscure profession. And in the course of the, the play, we'll learn a little bit about that profession. So maybe you brew whiskey or maybe you work on uh, uh, an oil derrick like they do in the thing on the Forble board, or uh, maybe you're a late night DJ or something like that, a kind of lonely person, usually a man, uh, somewhere far flung uh, who has an unusual profession and the radio play becomes a pretext for exploring that. Uh, Obler often uses similar characters, but he doesn't really go about teaching us so much what the lives of these people are like. Now, for Cooper, I think Cooper really prided himself on, on having this period in his life where he was kind of a jack-of-all-trades traveling the country. And this is actually quite a mysterious period. I, I was talking to someone at the conference in Washington about this, actually, that there are these six or seven years of Cooper's life after he left the, the Signal Corps and before he started working for NBC where we don't exactly know what he was doing. Later on in his life, he'd talk about all these different jobs he had as a salesman or as an oil worker and all this sort of stuff. But most of those were just no his accounts of what he was doing. But it's that period that really gave him that that experience that he later put into the broadcasts. Obler was not a working class hero. He was, well, you know, he was a, a broadcaster. That was his job. That was his job since he was a child. Uh, and so he had less of a personal organic connection to that world. Is there... Tell me if I'm overreaching here. Is there an echo of labor rights issues at all with the depiction of uh, Bernice and Mary that they're made to to work overtime and they get locked in? I, I was just thinking of like the triangle shirtwaist fire. And I know that's, you know, many years distant from from this recording. I mean, I think that's a, that's a that's a generous way of reading it. Uh, <laughs> So look, <laughs> there there are a couple of things that are going on that a contemporary ear might not think are that interesting. But the mere fact that these were two women, that this is a two woman show on a thriller program in the evening as opposed to during the day, that's a pretty significant change. You know, by the 1940s, the airwaves are so profoundly gendered, a daytime programming for women, evening programming for men. And there's all these things about how, uh, you know, no one will understand it if it's two different women. No one will uh, be able to discern one character from the other. They all sound the same. You know? <laughs> but this is a play where besides the their, their supervisor, it's basically a two woman show. And I think it also does speak to a lot of the displacements of the war, where a lot of jobs that would in other years have been filled by men ended up being filled by groups of women and often women who were displaced from their traditional homes. Uh, so people who had come to the city in search of adventure or been drawn into it as a result of the war exigencies. Um, you know, I think at the beginning of the play, Mary and Bernice talk about how this might be a, a good way to get ahead by by uh, finding someone to marry them. But it's pretty clear that they are working class women at a kind of dead end job at the radio station that they're working at. So there are these echoes of class that's going on through them. I think I think they're more connected to some of the displacements of, of wartime. 
my my impression of Bernice's like fantasy was less that she was going to find a director to marry and more that she was going to find a director to cast her as an actress. Well, I, I'm not, I guess the line is, where have you been all my life? Uh, sure. So that can so mean anything. I, I guess it could go, yeah, it could go either way. Um, but we do get the sense that they are two women kind of friends, but also with a little bit of animosity towards one another that are thrown together in this situation. The thing about the play that is really remarkable um, along these lines is the, the point about two thirds through it, where they both enter these states of catatonia, kind of, and these dreamlike states, and they start to exchange vocal characteristics with one another. There starts to be this yeah. this, this blurring between, and, and, and every time I, I've played this for people, they often talk about this. There's this moment at the very beginning of the play where it seems like they're very distinct from one another in terms of personality, vocal style, etc. But there's this point of convergence in the middle of the play where it's quite easy to forget who's who. And that alone is a, is a kind of statement in and of itself, the way that um, they become interchangeable uh, in this kind of big corporate machine. Sure. And also the shift in the locus of fear, you know, from, from Mary to Bernice, I think is really, for me, the most chilling part of it, where Mary had previously been so frightened of everything. And then she starts using the, oh, well, you're crazy language on Bernice, yeah. Yeah. where Bernice had been using it before. Yeah, no, it's true. And and you know, it, it could have gone it could have gone another way. You know, when I when I started working on on radio plays many years ago, I think the thing that convinced my dissertation advisor to work with me was when I played this piece for him and he said the same thing about Mary, about the how Mary when she when her voice kind of gets to that high, thin, dreamlike hallucination voice was so chilling. That it's such an incredibly uh, smart choice, and it really goes to uh, all of the themes about we talk about when it comes to radio: how it affects consciousness, how it uh, changes your mind, how it induces states of of uh, uh, trance and things like that. It has this powerful mythological quality to it. Should we talk about Mary? Yeah, let's talk about Mary. So you know who plays Mary, right? I don't. Mary is played by Mercedes McCambridge. Okay. Uh, who is uh, sort of the original radio scream queen. Really? Yeah, yeah. So most of her roles were in straight drama, but she's best known for horror radio plays on uh, Inner Sanctum, Mercury Theater on the Air, Lights Out, I Love a Mystery. She has an Oscar. She was Sadie Burke in All the King's Men in 1949. She was in Johnny Guitar, the great Nick Ray film. And the reason why everyone knows her is because she was the voice of the demon in The Exorcist. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a pedigree. It sure is. And, um, you know, I have a clip of uh, Terry Gross interviewing her about that role in 1981. Sure. The Exorcist Demon is a radio performance in a film. Yeah. Yeah. It's 100% radio. But I had such a great teacher in college that I can go now from what is a rather high and, and thin and reedy tone of what I am doing all the way without any effort whatsoever down to the absolute coarseness of what I'm <laughs> And on back up without any problem whatsoever. She was thought of as like the greatest of all radio actresses. She really understood her instrument. Uh, if you you know ever hear any interviews with her or read any of her biography, she has this incredibly nuanced understanding about what it's like to do vocal work in audio. She talks about she was a smoker and how she would use her wheeze. Uh, she used her gullet and her teeth and her lips. She had this very full body sense of what it means to be a a vocal artist in, in audio drama and uh, speaks quite eloquently about it. So everything that she's doing in this piece is really a kind of deliberate work of a virtuosic radio performer. One of the, the things she often writes about is how in audio, everyone talks about projection, but the hardest thing to do in the world is to project into a microphone. And she really spent an entire lifetime doing that. So yeah, so these, these, these kind of modulations she does, uh, these uh, kind of uh, very breathy moments. Um, these are the kinds of things that she would rehearse for days before she would perform it. And everybody loved working with her. You know, uh, Orson Welles thought she was the greatest of all the radio actresses. Technologically, by 1943, are we getting to a point with 
microphone tech that it really enables that kind of subtlety? What are we still with like ribbon microphones at this point? What are we working with here? Uh, well, we're working with uh, mostly with dynamic microphones. Um, I don't know what they had in this particular instance. The kind of classical bi-directional ribbon microphone would be, I think, a year or two away still. Uh, so if you imagine a, a picture of uh, you know Walter Cronkite with a with a microphone on his table, that's the kind you have in, in your mind. Lots of different kinds of microphones would be used. Uh, there was more to do with technique than with technology. Uh, Today we have, you know, you can buy thousands of different mics who have different responses there. You probably wouldn't have things like that. But they had uh, a sense of uh, how to use uh, pickup patterns in different ways. So these two were probably mic'd uh, with a bidirectional microphone of some kind. They might have been direct uh, mic'd with an omni, depending on how they wanted to do the sound effects. There's a really good use of off-mic sound in this piece. Uh, so a question could that I would have is, does that mean they did it? in the same space as the actress is, or maybe they did it in another uh, space that would have been used just for sound effects. Uh, we'll probably never know a lot of the different work that goes into it, but for a lot of these performers, it's it's more about technique than about technology. And that's true for, for McCambridge all the way up in her career. Like she couldn't tell you much about the microphones that they were using to, to do the Foley work with her when she was doing the exorcist voice, but she would talk about how she had to, you know, swallow chunks of apples so she could vomit <laughs> in, uh, in, in tandem with the image on screen to get a good join to them. Oh my God. That sounds like the world's worst ADR session. <laughs> good God. I'm imagining her looping that yeah. like on film and just to have to do that again and again. Oh man. I hope they paid her double. Well, the the truth is is that it was it was a tragedy because she wasn't even credited in the original release of the film and it was horrifying for her because uh she she worked so hard on it and she was really quite furious about it. She was an alcoholic uh and uh uh she spent a lot of her life kind of recovering from drinking, but in order to make the voice for the exorcist, I think I read somewhere that she started drinking again just so she could oh kind of God. produce the the damage to her vocal apparatus that required. So yeah, I mean there's a lot of dedication there. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's this famous French film theorist named Michel Chion who writes a lot about film and, and the voice and things like that. And, and he always says that the, the voice is the original special effect, uh, that, that there's nothing else that can like expand and contract and, uh, create as vividly as the voice. And I think that McCambridge's technique is a, is a good place to look for that. So what do you make of the kind of pat explanation at the end um, by the, the newsreel report that comes on or the, I guess the, just the news radio bulletin. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I, I think that the point of the play was to bring these women to a certain psychological state and what happened afterward didn't really matter uh, in my mind. The, the explanation that's given at the end, I think that this wants us to, to believe that there was no such supernatural force taking over their, their world. But in some ways, it kind of doesn't matter at that point. It just becomes a way for the, for the play to end and end tragically. You know, it, it's a sad piece that, that it ends this way. You can imagine another version of it that doesn't end that way. But, but he really, you know, Obler really goes for the jugular pretty often you know that that play i told you about the dark where they they discover this creature that turns bodies inside out it in the end it turns the the hero inside out and then it just ends hmm. and and i think it has something to do with this idea of of the the purpose is to create the vivid picture you know that the the thrust of the effort is less to give you this 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 snap of feeling at the end like oh it was all just a fantasy but rather to to create this really elaborate image in your mind and then just plant it there and leave it there you know he was a great painter really and so in some ways his his pieces aren't exactly narratives in in that way you know willis cooper's work was much more narrative uh, wells's work was was completely narrative but obler's was more to to create an image in your mind and then make it as powerful as it can be to to kind of endure the experience. Were you saying earlier that it was Obler's work, though, that could be very moralistic? Yes, that's true. Uh, because th those those two last examples, you know, Murder in the Script Department and The Dark, don't really seem to have any kind of moral... I, I mean, I think of horror as a relative newbie to the genre. I think of it as being usually a corrective, moralistic kind of genre. Yeah. 
Well, I'll give you an example. So uh, there's this play, radio play he created called um, A Creature from Hades. I think it's called The Creature from Hades or Visitor from Hades, something like that, around the same time as this piece. And basically, it's this couple who live in a cramped urban apartment uh, in New York City, a very similar kind of world as the one that Bernice and Mary live in. Uh, and they just have this knockdown, drag out fight. Like they're screaming at each other, you're terrible, I can't stand your guts, blah, 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 blah. And it just becomes, it becomes really sharp and grating. And then this creature suddenly appears. This creature shows up in their world. And it's this horrifying, you know, devil-like thing staring at them from the corner of the room. And we're, we're gradually come to understand that this is the, the manifestation of their aggression towards one another. And they come to understand that too, and then they kind of agree to make their behavior better in the world. Uh, now, you can interpret that and say, well, the, the, the moralistic interpretation of that is that this is about you know uh, traditional values, marital fidelity, respect, kindness, whatever you want to say. Or you can say that the purpose of this play is to give you this notion or this idea in your mind that that argument invective uh, cruelty can take on corporeal form. Uh, they're both legitimate interpretations. It's just that one of them puts the pressure on the ending and the other one puts the pressure on the beginning. Interesting. But he wasn't under an onus to always deliver any kind of moral with every single piece. No, I don't think so. But he, he did have like a, he had like a finger wagging quality to him. A lot of his plays, uh, they, they seem to have this valence to them that are about patrolling normative values and things like that. He did have a certain conservatism to himself. He was a, a big kind of family man. You know, he had this uh, terrible event later on in his life. I, I can't remember what it was, but uh, he had this this house that Frank Lloyd Wright built for him in California. And it, I think it was never finished. It looked like a little uh, a place where a hawk might perch up on the mountain somewhere. An eerie. Yeah, that's right. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> he could call it the eerie eerie. The, <laughs> something like that. There's a there's a film there's a film actually he shot there called Five, which is sort of terrible, but it's a, a great kind of end of the world film that he shot at his own house. But he uh, one day there was a, a big rainstorm and a big pool uh, formed somewhere in the gatehouse, and he one of his children drowned. Oh my god. Yeah, in his house there. And I, I don't know that he really recovered from it. You know, he he seems to have had a, a big slowdown in his career midway through it. But, you know, he really he really had, I think, a, a very traditional view of life. And he wanted to live that way. And in some ways, his radio plays reflect that. But, yeah, I often think of it because it's such a terrible thing. And it's also the kind of thing that would happen in an Archobler radio play. So an interesting figure and, and really had a, a really deep understanding of how sound works as an evocative and uh you know picture painting method and i think really all of his works display that cool yeah i'm 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 really excited to start digging into more of these cuz i i had i'd heard the name archobler you know i'd heard a a couple of episodes here or there but this is not at all where my historical study of audio drama had led me like i knew a lot more about the sydney green street Nero Wolf stuff from the early 50s yeah. than I did about any of this. Um, so this has been incredibly enlightening. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I know. Listen, I, I, I think he's, he's an interesting person to, to study, but I, I just feel like um, it's important to try and meet his work on its own terms. You know, I, I think that one of the shames about people like him and the kind of the experimentalists of the mid-century is that just by virtue of being experimental, this stuff gets dated pretty quickly. You know, it's like the same in anything else. It's the same in fashion. It's the same in music that people who kind of are really trying new things, their work tends to, you know, make people roll their eyes. But I, I think if you spend some time with it and really kind of take it for what it is, you can really learn a lot from what they created. And some of it is, uh, it just has this capacity to like stick on your insides in a way that like an episode of Nero Wolf or like The Adventures of Sam Spade really doesn't. Neil, thank you so much for going deep with me. This was a delight. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I hope I hope it was a little illuminating, and I, I really hope that uh, folks out there enjoyed the play. It's a it's a real gem, and uh, it, it's worth revisiting and thinking about a lot. So I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, I was illuminated. Not only was I illuminated, I was illuminated in green. <laughs>
what what is what do you what do you make of that what is that supposed to does that represent anything like that weird corpse light uh I, I mean i think this is his this is we're back to the camp supernatural where we started that's sure that's that's one element of it you know Archobler is not afraid to be childish. Uh-huh. He will play with ectoplasm with you and and still do profound things. Uh, so yeah, these the greenish lights, the f- you know hairy monsters, the uh, the hands reaching from behind curtains. He's he's there with you, uh, but but he can do a lot through those things that not all not all authors in this idiom can do. Well, this has been this has been great. Yeah, lots of fun talking to you. I really appreciate it. Hey, folks. Thank you for going deep with me and Professor Verma today. I always enjoy these conversations, and I love learning more about the history of this medium. If you want to learn more, you can check out Neil's book, Theater of the Mind, Imagination, Aesthetics, and American Radio Drama. I'll put a link in the episode description. If you have a candidate for a piece of classic audio fiction you think we should discuss, and it's in the public domain, let us know. We're at Radio Drama on Twitter. And, of course, if you have an original audio drama submission of your own, submit it to us at radiodramarevival.com. If you liked what you heard today, head to our website and throw a little change in the piggy bank. We've got a PayPal link over on the right-hand corner of the side. I'll put a link in the description. A sustaining donation of just a dollar per month would mean the world to us. That's all the time we have today, revivalists. I hope you enjoyed learning about the past today and that you'll use it to inform the way you think about the present and the future. Because if not, what the hell is history for? Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our interview's producer is Eli McElveen, who's having such a lovely time right here in the sun. Won't you come and join him? Our line producer is Matt Boudreau, who thinks I'm being crazy. Do you hear crazy? But even he can't explain why the doors are locked and the lights are going out and why I smell toast right now. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau, who bring me reams of dossiers on our guests, their hands stained purple from the mimeo, their whole selves suffused with informational text. Every time I high-five either of them, I end up with a novel written on my palms. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse, so don't worry. He'll be here soon. He'll be here so soon. (laughs) I'm your host, David Reinstrom. And this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. 